0: So much older I'm than I'm
1: now sometimes strange things happen as we age have you ever caught yourself acting more and more like your parents saying things that you thought you never would maybe doing things that seem so... Like them, Well, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is growing bolder. We're going to talk to a national newspaper columnist who noticed himself doing that kind of thing so much so that it embarrassed him. So he started to make a list of as many as he could, so he would notice it more if he did it. But as he was making the list, which turned into a book, by the way, he discovered something very unexpected and very profound, which he will share with us. You know,
2: that must be pretty common, Bill, because there's a national commercial out there now. Is it Geico? I'm not really sure, but how to not be like your parents. And Um, it's
1: right on, too, isn't it, Mark? I feel myself doing it every day. It
2: is funny. Also on today's program, uh, after the passing of Betty White, all of the regulars from the Mary Tyler Moore Show are gone, but of course they are far from forgotten and we're going to talk with one of the writers in fact she was one of the very first female comedy writers in television we'll chat with her about the legacy left by the stars of the show and what she hopes we'll remember about them and after that you're going to meet an artist who in his 90s is as sharp inquisitive and passionate as ever it's our pal Harold Guard on the power of creativity at any age Ordinary people living extraordinary lives. It's time for Growing Bolder.
1: I hate to have to be the one to tell you, but it's time we had to talk. Yep, probably the first one since your parents told you about the birds and the bees. This one equally is important, but very different. This one is about your clothes and your knees. Yeah, you're getting older. Listen, you're not the only one trying to avoid it. We all are, and we can, because our next guest has created sort of a blueprint for the new old age. He's a journalist and a columnist for the Washington Post, USA Today, a contributor to the New York Times, and I'm telling you, his articles are well worth checking out. They trigger your mind, and at the same time, he's got a way of being able to touch your heart, too because he writes about experiences from his own life in a way that makes you feel like you know him and that you've gone through them too. He writes about aging, health, and even subjects like manner and civility. He's written a book, and I want to give you the whole title. Are you ready? Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, A Highly Judgmental, Unapologetically Honest Accounting of All the Things Our Elders Are Doing Wrong. It's a great title and you know you've thought about that before. So the question is, are we destined to become our parents? Let's find out by saying hi to Steven Petro. How are you, Steven? I am very well. This is a great book. And I, I was very surprised when I picked it up and read it. And, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But what made you think, first of all, out of all of the topics you cover, out of all the great things that you do, hmm, I think I'll write about stupid things I won't do when I get old.
3: I know, um, but first of all, thank you very much for the nice things that you said about the book and um, it's always uh, gratifying to an author when you know a host like you gets it so um, but the way this book came about was very personal. I was in my early fifties, and my parents were in i think their mid seventies at that point and I started, you know, kind of paying attention to how they were moving into this chapter. And I'm the firstborn, and I've always been the one with the big mouth and, you know, the smart aleck and, and so on and so forth. And so I started keeping this list of um, what I was calling, you know, for myself, stupid things. And um, you know, it was things like my mom didn't want to pick up the throw rugs that she loved in their house because they were beautiful. And they were beautiful, except that my dad was tripping over them. Um, my dad was equally as stubborn. You know, he continued to drive when he couldn't turn his neck. And so I just started writing these down. I probably had a hundred. And, um, and one of the things I do in my life is I often take the personal and I will write about it. And so this became a column in the New York Times. It was called the much more innocuous um, piece, Things I Will Do Differently When I Get Old. But that non- nonetheless, it became um, among the most um, most read pieces for about two weeks on the Times site. And then um, I started getting emails from people and I got about 200 lists of others and they were doing the same thing. They were recording what their parents and the other elders in their orbit were doing wrong. And I said, you know what? Stephen, that's a book and my literary agent agreed. That's a book because it seemed to be touching, touching a lot of people. And it's not, you know, while it's a lot about, you know, stupid things and it sounds like it's funny or it sounds like it's snarky, it's really about trying to understand how the next generation, how we can do better than our parents. And so it's not so much criticism of them as really a way to make a pledge to ourselves. I'm going to do this, not that. And hopefully I'll be able to keep myself to those things. We'll see about that.
1: You know, I think you teed it up so well in the book because one of the things that, that you bring up and you talk about is something that we believe a thousand percent. And it's what the mind believes the body embraces. And you point to a study that shows that people exposed to ageism die nearly eight years sooner than people exposed to positive views on aging. And that's from the World Health Organization.
3: Exactly. And it's even a little bit more upsetting than that. It's people who internalize those views about aging as negative so that if I think that being older is a negative, you know, then I'm going to have poorer health, poor mental health, and yes, um, up to almost eight years of less longevity. So it's really important to like retrain our brains to understand that, and you know this, Bill, being older is very different than being ill. Um, they get conflated in our in our in our society in our language, but um, but they're really distinct, and um, there may be some overlaps later on. But I'm really trying to get people to understand that we can make different choices about how we think about these chapters
1: of our life that will um, really benefit, benefit us in terms of our health and longevity. It's interesting because it's such a two-way street. You know, there are a lot of people out there, rightly so, that talk about ageism, and there's a great deal of it. But a lot of ageism we perpetuate on ourselves. You know, we figure, hey, I'm 60, I'm 65, man, I guess my knees hurt. So instead of getting over it, maybe I should just sit sit around a lot more than I used to. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of from that culture. You can't go into a greeting card store without, hey, you're 50, you know, let me find your car keys for you. Um, so there is, is this little drumbeat of you're not worth as much as you used to be as you age. And unfortunately, we buy into that. And to me, that's the magic of your book because you start – by picking those things that we do laugh at because they are funny, but pointing out that they're not necessarily guarantees as we age.
3: Well, you know, I, you know I'm very, um, you know, I point the fingers at a lot of people, but I mostly point the finger at myself about things that I have done. And so, you know, along the vein of what we're talking about, I used to send out those birthday cards that really made fun of my friends who were of a certain age, you know alluding to the fact, you know, you can't hear, you can't see, you know, you don't have much time left. Um, I used to lie about my age when I was, um, divorced and on some of these dating apps because I thought younger was better I had all these justifications. But when you kind of, um, add them up, you realize this is, this is the problem. You know, we think there's something wrong with, with being older and, you know, you know, we have, we have more experience. We have a little bit more wisdom, um, you know we have more time often, so you know, these are these are assets, and I'm hoping that people will come away understanding that there are choices to be made. One thing that I that I experience so frequently, and and I'm betting you have too, it's what I call the organ recital, and it's when folks um, get together, and let's just say fifty plus, sixty plus, and you know the conversation is all about you know my elbow hurts, you know I have a, a heart blockage on and on and on and you know when we talk like this first of all it's very you know it's very alienating to anyone who is younger and they're they're, then they're going to start to perceive us as well we are you know these old people are their illnesses but but so will we so i say you know limit that to a cocktail you know and then move on and get to you know the activities of the day
1: yeah i think again it's having a purpose and it's you know it's being active so you have something else to talk about you know, sometimes as we tend to isolate and our world, shrinks as we age, you know, that's pretty much the, the, well, instead of how you doing, it's, hey, what's hurting? Exactly. And, you know, I see Larrabee
3: Johnson um, um, posted, you know, we are what we think we are, positive or negative, And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Thanks, Larrabee.
1: Yeah, I think we get it. We kind of start to lose it, uh, forget about it sometimes. It 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 is funny because there are some things that you point out that actually are kind of grounded in reality. Do we all just naturally become grouchy as we get older?
3: You know, I wake up grouchy. So, and I've been been waking up grouchy for for decades now. You know, we don't. Um, There's, you know, there are a lot of stereotypes about, you know, sort of grouchy, curmudgeonly, you know, older people. But There's so many people who wake up, um, you know, with, with joy and, you know, a light, you know, a light step in their foot. Um, you know, and that's not to say people who are suffering from a condition or an illness um, very well may wake up, you know, grouchy or, or in pain. Um, and again, you know, and again, those are different things. Um, I always like to, you know, when I'm in a grouchy mood, I like to find one thing that will bring joy to me. And I have my, my puppy is sleeping on, over here. Sometimes it just may be you know, a flower or the sky, but to, if all of us can just, when we're in those moods, just look for one thing to bring a little joy, you'll feel it. And then you're more likely to um, spread that joy too. There's, um, there's this wonderful social scientist at Stanford who talks about how joy and kindness is really like a virus. So if I'm kind to you, Bill, Today, then you're more likely to be kind to somebody else. And um, that's the kind of virus that, you know, I really can stand
1: behind and we don't need to wear a mask um, to prevent or us. need a vaccine. But We're talking to Stephen Petro, author of this great book called Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Uh, I want to make sure you don't miss that because it really, really is worth picking up. It'll start the thought process. And most of the time we age in denial. We don't want to think about it. And and I think, Stephen, I, I wonder... I wanted to ask you if a lot of it comes from staring face to face at our own mortality you know you, you were kind of forced to do that years ago when you found out you had cancer. so how did that change you? What did you learn from that?
3: Well, so just so everyone understands, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer when i was twenty six and uh, so I was a young man at that time and like many young guys, uh, kind of full of myself. I thought I was invincible, so on and so forth. And you know, I quickly learned some lessons that none of that was true. And, um, you know, that really kind of um, humbled me in a way. It also pushed me to realize that, you know, that every day matters and how you choose to live your days matter. And I've certainly wandered know, here and there from that. But it's something that I've come back to. I feel fortunate in, in some ways to have had um, you know, serious illness early because it, it did ground me. It also, um, it's put me in touch with the cancer community for my entire life. And um, I do volunteer work to this day with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, the hospital where I was primarily treated. And um, so I have a sense of responsibility also in trying to um, share some of what I've learned over, over the years with 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 other patients there there now, and um I think it also allowed me to tackle what's in the last part of the book, so the book is set up in three in three sections: stupid things I won't do today, stupid things I won't do tomorrow, and then stupid things I won't do at the end and um a part of those things at at the end are coming to are coming to grips with life does come to an end and uh and I remember, if you let me just tell this one story about my mom, she had terminal lung cancer. I was having a hard time with that. And twice she said, she asked me, well, what happens when I die, Stephen? And twice I said, hey, mom, what do you want for dinner tonight? I was not able to, to join her in that conversation. But when she, when she asked me the third time, I realized I needed to step up and have that conversation with her. And I did. And that was, that was great for her because I was able to, to impart some information. And it was great for me because I was able to um, really have an open conversation, get past some of my fears. And um, and what she really wound up being afraid of, of, of was, you know, will she be in pain when she passed? And, and she was not. And um, so in a way, that was, that was beautiful to have that kind of conversation. And so with this book, I take some of these hard topics, death, dying, but also illness, disability, sexual dysfunction, And I bring humor to them so that we can find ways to talk about them because we're scared of talking about these topics in large part. And um, so if I'm your foil to get into a conversation that's um, that's important, so so be it. Uh,
1: Something else that you talk about in depth in the book that's really, uh, really hit home with me is the uh, I guess it's the our hesitation to say goodbye. And I think you had a couple of experiences where you thought it might be the final conversation and it really wasn't for a number of years. But there's no downside to that, right so you're
3: talking about um my friend um Denise Kessler, who has sort of become the the star of this book, and I met Denise when she was in her late seventies and I was in my late thirties and I was trying to rent an apartment from her. She was too busy to schedule an interview with me um she was she was doing water aerobics she was um protesting um some leftist cause here or there she was working on the on the um, on the newspaper. And um, finally we did, and we became friends for, for 20 years. And, um, you know, I loved her. I, I would say I loved her like a grandmother, but I really didn't love her like a grandmother. I loved her like a friend because I learned so much from her. And I believe she learned different things from me because of our, our, our different places on sort of the, the lifespan. And um, what I love most about Denise was she was a member of The Greatest Generation, but she is what, um, what I would call a perennial. And perennials can be of any age. You can be 20, you can be 50, you can be 80. because perennials are continually reinventing themselves. They're passionate, they're connected, they stay connected to people. Um, you know, they're very much alive and they come, they come back year after year after year, like like the perennials in, in our gardens. And so, um, so Denise has been a role model for me, you know, while she was here and she passed about six years ago when she was 98. And, um, you know, I hope that we can all you know, take this, this idea of becoming perennials and, um, and shift a little bit more into that and also get away from some of the labels that we have for each of the generations, because you know, millennial, Gen X, Y, Z, I think they are dividing us rather than bringing us together. And we have so much in common and so much that we need from each other. I want to kind of promote, promote that um,
1: you know, as we move along here. So I'd like to talk about some of the some of the superficial fun things in the book, too. So let's go through some of the stupid things that we talked about real quick, kind of like a lightning round. Your thoughts on coloring your hair.
3: Diane Sawyer, the newscaster, once told me, and I took it to heart and to my hairstylist, anchors don't get older, they just get blonder. <laughs> I followed her advice. I looked like a trashy secretary, and since then... I've stayed with my natural color and tried to be a little bit more authentic and, and a lot less beautiful than Diane Sawyer. Age-appropriate clothing. Exactly. So this is where I love to get in a little dig at my ex-husband who doesn't want to get in something at their exes. So uh, although we were the same age, he, um, he didn't like that I wore skinny jeans and sort of tight um, sports, sports coats, and he told me I was inappropriate and I told him to go see a lawyer. That was not the real reason. We <laughs> uh, was he right? It was not right. And the thing okay. is, you know, older people become invisible um, in this culture. And so, yes, if you've always dressed in a way that bring, that is distinctive or brings some amount of attention to you, keep with it because we want to stay visible and vibrant. How about only hanging with people our age? I know. I love you, Bill, but it's great to have friends of different generations. We learn so much
1: from them. They're different perspectives, and they learn from us. So as I said, with my friend, Denise. Something I do all the time, over answering questions like, how are you? How was your weekend? I know. <laughs> you know, so I write a lot about manners and
3: civility. And the question, how are you, is really not even a question um, for, for most of us. And then you know, And then, you know, with some people, then you start to get this this real answer, which is like can be such a such a long winded one and a bummer. Um, the answer is, I'm fine. How are you? Um, unless
1: it's someone who's close, and then you know you do want to get into some substantive um, ways that you're feeling. Uh, the, something I do that annoys everybody is I cannot. If you're riding right. in a car with me, I cannot go down the street without going. That used to be a sandwich shop. Did you know that was Miller's Hardware over there? That used to be a house. Can't help it. We're
3: always making these comparisons. Nobody's really that interested, you know. We are um, just kind of keep a little bit of a lid on it and stay, you
1: know, be here now, as the meditation folks um, tell us. So writing this these lists and pointing out these things and being aware of the things that you don't want to do is fantastic. Is it inevitable? Are we gonna do? Are we gonna do it anyway? Is it just part of our DNA? Are we going to be our parents or can we kind of maybe skirt the the more stereotypical ones? So I was deluded. So I, you know, I made my list. I wrote my
3: article. I wrote my book. And I was like, well, all those things are in the future and I'm not going to do them." Well, I'm now 64. And around the time that I turned 60, I noticed I started doing some of the very same stupid things that oh. parents <laughs> had done. Um, one of them in this very room that I'm in. You can't see it, but there's a bookcase in front of me here. And I needed a book from way up there. And I got one foot on the desk and one foot on the chair. I was in my And then I was leaping up to try to get the book. Stupid. And um, I said, Stephen, it's time to get the stepladder. I could tell you dozens of those things. I can tell you dozens of things that, you know, I I see my friends struggling with. So, you know, we're going to do some of them. But I'm hoping that we'll have a little bit greater awareness and we'll do we'll do few of them or we'll learn from those mistakes before they become really big problems. Um, But, you know, I had a grandmother who was stubborn. I had a dad who was stubborn. And you know what, Bill? I'm stubborn, too. So. um, But I hope I'm going to be a little bit more mindful and that this book will help help others see some of those ways that we can make better choices.
1: It really does. And and I think one good way to wrap up is I think what you listed, it's kind of like it's a it's a it's a list of symptoms more than the real issue, I think. And I, I mean, it just seems to me that the thing that we really fear, it's not really getting old, but what we fear is is being left behind, being left out, you know, Isolated and lonely. The kids don't call. You know, the, there's no place for me to go. I don't drive like I used to. And and, and I think it's it's just that fear. It's loneliness uh, that triggers a lot of this. That
3: is that is brilliant and that is right. And a sub theme of the book is this is a tool to help you stay connected to people you care about and to have them stay connected to you. So if you're going to be grouchy, you're not serving your own needs and you're not serving the needs of those who care about you. I have this, it's kind of a silly chapter head. It's like, I won't double space after a, after a period. Anyone's going to type, you know, when we did, you double space. You don't need to anymore. But the big point in that chapter is, don't be fearful of the technology in our lives. Embrace it and use what you can to stay connected. So if your grandkids are texting, Text. Um, you know, don't insist on email. Don't insist on the phone. We all need to adapt and sort of find ways to come halfway at least. But I know so many people are just afraid of the technology and um, they back off, and they wind up being more isolated as a result.
1: Well, there you go. This is not. It's not just a great book. It really, it's it's a must read. It's a very quick and easy read, and and boy, it sure has a great way of bringing us into a very interesting topic, a pretty heavy one. Without us even realizing it, we wade in very safely because he leads in with humor, with observations that we can all relate to. And then before you know it, he's tugging at our hearts by pointing out how much he misses his parents, which we all feel, how much of them is in our DNA and how we all see life from a very different perspective as we get older. It's just the way Stephen Petro looks at life. I know you'll be interested in checking out his other books and, and his columns as well, and he's just got a way of getting us all to think about the things that we tend to avoid and put off. You'll be all the better for it, and you can find more information at Stephen Petro, P-E-T-R-O-W dot
2: Up next, a look back at the golden age of television with one of the very first female writers of sitcoms. She'll talk about the impact the Mary Tyler Moore Show had and is still having today. This is Growing
1: Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: Florida Blue Medicare. Turning 64 is a time to celebrate as new adventures and opportunities await. And 64 is also a time to think about Medicare. Growing Boulder created a guide that helps explain it all. Available for free at growingbolder.com slash medicare. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer and this is Growing Bolder. We're about to be joined by the legendary comedy writer Susan Silver. Check her out there. She wrote for some of the greatest sitcoms of all time. I'm talking about The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bob Newhart, The Partridge Family, and remember Movie of the Week? She wrote a few of those too. She's got an incredible podcast called Susan Says where she lends her wisdom to all kinds of topics. Maybe living alone is one of them and Best of all, she has written a book, a fantastic book about her experiences as one of the only women, maybe one of the first women, one of the very first to break the good old boys' club. There's the book that used to be the norm in television. It's an amazing read. The book is called Hot Pants <coughs> in Hollywood Sex secrets, and sitcoms. And, and really, we touch on some interesting topics. Susan is a fascinating person, and her experiences and her life journey has, has led her. Man, you're not a one-trick pony at all. You've done so many different things, which we'll get to. And these days, uh, you're living in New York, living alone, and, and thanks to COVID, you've barely gone out the door, I'm guessing, for like 18 months or yeah, so. Yeah, it's
4: tough for everybody. And I think that you have to do a few things. You have to find humor in everything. Even in my book, when I was in the hospital and I was in serious condition, I always found humor. That is a saving grace. And if you're not particularly funny yourself, you know, watch comedies. One of the things I've spoken to you about was if I ever can get myself out of bed, I want to do a, a speech called The New Three R's. It's not reading, writing, and arithmetic anymore. It's resilience, which I didn't know I had till I wrote my book. Reinvention, which you have to do every 20 years or you get bored. And relationships, relationships are the most important thing. And you say, what keeps you going now when you're alone is you have them to reach out to and they send you pictures and it's, it's, well, it's like having a real family.
1: That the unforgettable Lou Grant from the Mary Tyler Moore show, Ed Asner passed away. Tell us a little bit about Ed.
4: My Ed, I call him my teddy bear buddy. I love him. So he was flirtatious and fun and sexy And I loved him. And um, I was fortunate enough to have written a script that he won his Emmy for, his second Emmy. And he mentioned my name on television. My mother was thrilled. And he also blurbed my book. Can I read what he said? It was so amazing. May I?
1: Really? That would would be awesome.
4: Okay. It says, it's a little self-serving, but he's so cute. You'll see. When I first met Susan Silver, I thought she was too gorgeous to be a comedy writer. Then I delivered her lines and got an Emmy. There is a word in Yiddish for taste. It's called Tam. I'm happy to report that even the sexy parts in her terrific book are done with Tam. (laughs) He was great.
1: As a writer, Susan, did you have, were you guys buddy-buddy? Did you have access, or were you uh, some anonymous person? that? Uh, no, no, no. Had-
4: One of the great things about Mary Tyler Moore show, which was the first show I did, so I, I say this all the time, it was like starting on top and then 20 years downhill after that, but I thought every show was going to be like this. You went for your meetings, you pitched your story to the producers and directors, then you um, wrote your script, you turned it back in, and most shows that would be it. With this show, they invited you to come to the table where there would be the readings. If there were changes, you were involved. You went to the taping. And you just, you know, had relationships. And then, of course, by a stroke of amazing luck, I wound up living two doors from Mary in New York. So, And her husband was a doctor whose office was in my building, so I got to see her some. And I kept up with Valerie and with Ed.
1: Uh, Valerie was a frequent guest on on the program here, and we just oh, loved her attitude. And she was, you know, she, she was, was such the a greatest, most
4: extraordinary person. And um,
1: you look at those smiling faces, and you think everybody's had it so easy. But all of us have challenges and and ups and downs to deal with. It's just because they're they're frozen on film at that moment in time forever, and it's almost to us like like they never grow old. Does that? Does it seem to you, does it seem like another life? Does it seem like yesterday? Um, It seems
4: like a really, really, really long time ago. Even though I'm between 50 and death, I said, no, seriously, I I was very young and it was a long, long time ago. But those shows are still rerunning and they still hold and people still love them. And when I did my book tour, I cannot tell you how many people came up to me, gay guys and single women saying that their Saturday nights were based around Mary Tyler Moore show.
1: And one guy, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I thought you were.
4: One guy came up to me and he said, you know, my mother was flying in from Europe to visit me and she was arriving on a Saturday night. And I said, mother, you're going to have to take a cab from the airport because I'm busy watching Mary Tyler Moore. I said, oh, I'm sure your mother appreciated that. But people love that show and it's held up.
1: Yeah. What a great show to be a part of. You talked about that being your first writing gig, uh, but you worked for Saturday. You worked for um, a Laugh-In, laugh-in. Before, before. Jonah
4: Martin's Laugh-In is, uh, younger people Google that. Older people remember. It was the first sort of satiric, fun comedy show. And you I bet did,
1: your sweet Bippy it was.
4: <laughs> we better explain what that is. That's, I don't know what it was, but it was one of the sayings. Um, and uh, yeah, I did the casting for that, and I was the assistant casting person. I had done casting in um, advertising, and I got this job, my first job in TV. It was so exciting. And I sat out in the lobby to greet people as they came in. And one day, this enormously scary guy came in with, like, black witch-like hair and an outfit and everything. And I was, like, so scared, I, I almost screamed. But it was Tiny Tim, who was a real icon of the day. He was one of our guests. Everybody it on that show, including Richard Nixon. And uh, it, was, it was quite an amazing thing. And uh, then, sad to say, my boss, who was an elderly man, passed away, and they made me the casting director. So that was, I had nothing to do with his passing away. And that was a, a really <laughs> great, great job. But I wanted to write, and I met a girl named Iris Rainer Dart, whom you know as the writer of Beaches and other wonderful things. And she was managed by the great, late Gary Marshall, director, producer, actor, and he had a little management company for new writers, and she and I wrote a love American style. And then she took a break to have a baby, and I saw the Mary Tyler Moore Show. I said, "Oh God, Gary, I can do this." She's from Minneapolis; I'm from Milwaukee. It's the same thing; they both start with M. I worked in a local TV station. She worked in. A, please, please. So he got me an appointment there, and they said, "If we get picked up, they started midseason. If we get picked up for the next half season, you'll be the first writer." And I was, and it was amazing. As I said, it was downhill for 20 years after that. Well, you have to reinvent yourself. So 20 years of writing. Then I took a year off. I moved to New York. I was fortunate to be able to do that. And I met with 60 people. I networked. And I realized I wanted to get involved in Holocaust organizations. And um, I became the head of the Speakers Bureau for the Anti-Defamation League. I did that for a couple of years. And then I was the UN observer for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which was a very... um, difficult thing because the UN is not the most friendly place for Israel. Um, you have to reinvent yourself just for your own boredom's sake. You know, you need to find new passions all the time. And um, one of the things that's tough now, as people know, lying around the house, it's very tough to find a passion. So my thing that saved me, may I say what saved me?
1: Please, because I was going to ask you. you.
4: Okay, guys. needlepoint. Needle point.
1: Oh, that sounds really um exciting.
4: I know I, it's so calming. I, I've done five <laughs> pillows, three for myself and one for my godchild and one for my one of my best friends. It's so calming, and I needed that. I needed that kind of it's like adult coloring. I used to do that. you know you need things to calm you down and put you in a nice space, you know and, and stuff like that. But um, you have to find passion. And I'm looking for my new passion. I'm also looking for a husband, if that's possible. But it's hard when you don't leave the house and you're wearing a mask when you do. So that's a problem.
1: (laughs) Some for some it's an advantage, you know. For me, it would be. (laughs) And and another reminder because I do know that people out there are wondering about the book. It's called Hot Pants in Hollywood, Um, and you can order it. Check it out, or just learn a lot more about Susan Silver. There's where you go. Hot Pants in Hollywood.
2: Up next, I get the chance to visit the studio of an abstract thinker who's also an abstract expressionist. Even in his 90s, he has much to say about creativity and life itself. This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by...
1: The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. It isn't very often that someone tells you how lucky you are to be an older person, but it's true. There's never been a better time than right now. Aging expert Annette Kelly believes it's something we all need to think about taking advantage of.
5: That's a huge difference in how healthy we are, how much longer we're going to live as a group, how capable and experienced and educated we are. We could change the world, and and many of us have been working on that. You know, I feel like um, this is the golden age of aging, sort of. So, does that answer your question? <laughs> I'm not done. <laughs> And we all,
1: we all have that obligation <laughs> yeah. to contribute to that. Of course. We can all do our part. It's not a disease, no. it's an opportunity.
5: No, and I think we can, uh, when we volunteer, I volunteer a lot, and when we volunteer, we need to volunteer with an open heart with what, is, what do you need from me? Not appearing at the door saying, well, I have this, 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 and this. Um, pick one. No. What, what does your organization need? What's the struggle here? And what I see lots of times in community organizations is that the experience of the older person can actually be uniting of the mission and vision and all of that. We may not have the technology so, so high, but we certainly have the interpersonal experience and the ability to take the long view and I think we can, we can provide that and, and offer that in, in our communities. We all should be volunteers.
1: At the very least, we should all do what we can to make a difference, to help a neighbor, to treat others the way we want to be treated. That's living life to the fullest. More insight and information at growingbolder.com slash medicare. When you look at a work of art, do you ever wonder how old the artist is? You can't tell, can you? Age has nothing to do with it. Mark has long been fascinated by great art and the people who create it. And one of his favorite and most interesting is an artist of some renown who happens to be doing some of his best, most challenging, and most provocative works in his 90s. Well, here's Mark with proof that art knows no age.
2: At 98, Harold Gard is still filling his walls and those of collectors, galleries and museums with bold and provocative paintings even as he recovers from a fall. I want to toast to your health and your success and our friendship. Thank you for all of that. We first met Harold when he was in his mid-80s and his work was beginning to capture the attention of curators everywhere.
4: And it was very confrontational, very aggressive and I was like, wow. Who is this guy? He must be, what, 25, 30 out of, out of art school. He really knows what he's doing. He's really great.
2: Over the past decade, Gard's desire to constantly evolve through creative risk-taking and his refusal to simply repeat what sells enhanced his reputation
6: as a rebellious provocateur. Every work that's completed is a like a scar because the intention was to do something that far exceeded anything that's finally there so even though i take pleasure in what i've done i still have to feel like my, maybe my best work is still to come maybe, maybe it'll still happen
2: over the years, we've visited Gard at his home, and we've chatted with him at his openings at museums and galleries. He admits to enjoying his later-in-life acclaim, but only because it's a means to an end.
6: If any of this helps me spend more time in the studio, that's what it's really all about. And uh, oh, but, I, but I love it. I mean, I, I, I love this kind of thing. I love it, the fact that the wine is good.
2: Guard thrives on social connection, but he lives alone, and the isolation created by the pandemic was difficult. But as it has for decades, the war of art, the daily problem-solving in his studio, has kept him stimulated and engaged.
6: I have to let the accidents happen on a good day, because when I leave them there, they're not accidents anymore. There's the feeling that if I stay with it long enough, I will have something of which I'm not ashamed. I really don't care, on that thing, for almost anybody's opinion of what I'm doing.
2: At ninety-eight, what Guard does care for is the stimulation of other artists—something that opens his eyes and stirs his soul.
6: I just don't want to be bored when I walk into a gallery. I'm sure it's boring. Shit. I mean, it's just dull, dull. What keeps me going? I'm hoping that the next gallery I walk into would have something that will challenge me visually, and either with envy or respect. Maybe both. I want to feel the energy that comes with emotional honesty. I want to see the effort. I want to feel it.
2: As Gard approaches 100 and flips through images of paintings that he's created over seven decades, I had to wonder. Do you have a favorite period of your art career, Harold? Probably now. In a world in which we're led to believe that creativity and ability diminish with each passing year,
6: Harold Gard continues to prove otherwise. That, that's finished. That's kind of my current pride and joy. I think that's a very good painting.
3: I do, too. What what are you
6: going to do with it? Uh, Hold on to it. I think that actually, on a good day, I think it belongs in
2: the museum. And if he never picked up another brush, he finally acknowledges that his body of work is significant and consequential.
6: There's enough there to be able to close the book (laughs) and say this is
2: it. And then critics, curators, and collectors will decide if his art is worthy of hanging beside the other great artists of the 20th and 21st centuries.
6: And if it's not? I hope if it's a very cold night and they build a bonfire, they'll get some warmth out of it.
1: Just amazing. Still looking to be challenged and still pushing the boundaries. Mark, what is it that you like the most about Harold Gard?
2: You know, I I think that it is in his late 90s, Bill, he doesn't worry at all about running out of time. You know, he still wants to take chances. He still wants to, uh, you know, experiment. And and I think that's amazing at 90 years old to say, you know what, I'm going to try something
1: entirely new. He's willing to let go of what works in order to explore what might be. New challenges. New extremes, new places to go even in his 90s. Coming up next, do you have enough money for retirement? How about some tips to protect your income? This is Growing Boulder.
4: Support for Growing Boulder provided by
1: Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Do you have a financial plan for your future? Jeanette Bajalia says all of us should, and it's why she founded Woman's Worth and believes in the information available at protectedincome.org. She shares some important financial points with Mark.
2: There are a million different ways to plan for your financial future, but I know that you believe there are a couple of key components. we got to figure out how we can have protected lifetime income. Social security is, is one part of that, but certainly not enough. Pensions are another if you're lucky enough to have one. Few of us do. Uh, the third are annuities. Can you tell us what an annuity is and why you're bullish on that?
7: I'm bullish on annuities because I work with a lot of women who are going to navigate their retirement journey with only one Social Security check. They don't have a second one. What I like to think about is, is creating that protected income to represent the gap between that Social Security check and what you need to maintain your core lifestyle. Because I don't want any disruption in the lifestyle. And that's how I use annuities. I understand what is that income gap. Typically, I want it protected with protected income. I want it with an insurance contract, which that's all an annuity is. It gives me insurance for income, just like I have homeowners in case my house breaks down. I have an annuity in case I run out of money. It won't run out of money if I get the right kind of annuity. So I want to make sure that the women I serve have guaranteed income that they get that direct deposit every month with their social security check. And they don't have to worry about how to pay bills. And that way their third bucket, the money that they might've saved in personal savings through 401ks or taxable accounts, they can fund the fun stuff. They could do their travel. They could buy cars. They could maintain their homes. They could do all those things that most advisors are not thinking about. But for protected income, It has to maintain your poor lifestyle.
2: Where can I go to find a trusted source that can help me understand what an annuity is and how it might help me?
7: Yes, you have to be really careful about sources. And my most trusted source that I personally use as a financial professional and that I refer all my clients to them is the uh, protectedincome.org. Because that information is consumer-based, it's agnostic. There's not any one company or one financial firm or one investment firm that's that's funding it. It is a collection of research and information from some of the most brilliant fellows from the some amazing universities. And that's where I drive uh, everyone to. And I highly recommend you make that a favorite.
2: Folks, educate yourself. Uh, Protected lifetime income, guaranteed income for as long as you might live. Uh, Jeanette mentioned it. Protectedincome.org is the place to go. It's a great nonprofit that offers educational resources that can help you understand uh, what an annuity is and how it might best serve you. Jeanette Bejia, always great to see you. Thanks.
1: Well, this is the part of the program where we take a minute to see things from a clearer perspective. We call it On My Mind with Mark. So, Mr. Middleton, what's on your mind today? You know, I'm thinking about some of the stuff we're going to do this upcoming year, Bill, that is kind of under our heading
2: of iGen Intergenerational. I don't know whether you folks know we had a, the world's first intergenerational gaming tournament online on Twitch. We launched a Twitch channel that's called Growing Boulder iGen. And we're going to do a whole lot more this year. We're talking about a a wisdom walk, which brings together different generations. We're talking about intergenerational cooking. Uh, and the reason I'm thinking about this, I just get so irritated by all of the generational stereotyping out there. You know, when we do that, when we talk about millennials or we talk about Gen Z or they talk about boomers in a negative way, it just serves to separate everybody. And in truth, I think we've learned, Bill, that we're, we are more alike than we are different and if we define ourselves by generations it no good comes of it it's why we never talk about baby boomers here on growing Boulder.
1: do you do you think that's a trend going one direction or the other because i mean forever mark all these senior communities sprang up Where you would put people over 55, Mm -hmm. over 60, put them away. They, They didn't live in the home with the kids and the grandkids anymore. Are we going back towards a more nuclear family or are we going further towards putting people in silos?
2: You know, unfortunately, Bill, I think our culture in general is getting more and more divisive. It's us against them. Uh, you know, we notice differences before we notice uh, similarities. But, but in truth, we're all very similar. I just hate the fact when people say, oh, millennials are so sensitive. You know, this is the generation that everybody got a participation. You know, we, we just find ways to dislike people and now generations instead of looking for the things that bring us together.
1: And don't you find, Mark, that it pulls us all together and makes us all better when we learn from each other when we experience each other yeah we we have to begin to consciously think of ourselves as
2: part of one family, and we're all very, very similar. And, and so that's what we're trying to do. That's what's on my mind, is what can we do to facilitate the benefits of intergenerational connection? Because I think the inertia, to your point, Bill, is, is in the other direction. It's pulling us apart instead of bringing us together.
1: That's such a great thought, Mark. And folks, if you like that as well, be a part of the answer. Help us come up with things that move us forward follow us at growing at growing boulder on facebook instagram and twitter and we'll see you right back here again next time the growing boulder radio show is a production of growing boulder llc all rights reserved this program was recorded at growing boulder studios in orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on npr1 itunes spotify stitcher and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder
7: every day.
0: Crimson flames tied through my ears, Going high and mighty trapped Countless fires